Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at politics, news and views in the north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, I'm a journalist based in Leeds and I write a daily politics newsletter called the Northern Agenda. But today I have left Leeds, gone all the way across the Pennines to Manchester where the political action is. It's the Conservative Party Conference, we're on day three of it today. Uh, it's been hectic but lots of, lots of news happening uh, and I am joined by three, uh, three of my journalist colleagues who have have been uh, at the uh, fringe events, they've been listening to the speeches, they've been hoovering up the free drinks, just as I have. Uh, we've got Jen Williams from the Financial Times. We have uh, Joseph Timmon, who is the new political writer for the Manchester Evening News, and Ethan Davies, who uh, is a Tory conference uh, newbie, I gather, but uh, covers the city centre for the Manchester Evening News. The first place to start has to be HS2. It's the big story that is certainly dominating the media narrative. It's the thing that all cabinet ministers are being asked about. In my notes in this section, I've just got written, WTF is going on with HS2. Uh, maybe, well, what we know is that every time a Tory minister is asked about it, they can't give an answer. Is it coming to Manchester? Is it not? Um, Joe, you have been following this all the way through. What, what is the current situation as, as you understand this? Well, as far as we know, um, what Number 10 said yesterday is that no final decision has been made and they've, as far as I know, not said anything since then officially. But what's been reported is that there might be an emergency cabinet meeting today um, where a decision might be made or at least the issue will be discussed. And uh, we've also heard that it might, uh, that, that decision might be announced um, tomorrow when Rishi Sunak speaks. That's interesting. So, I mean, it, just to set the scene, like, you know, journalists and politicians have been going to various fringe events about transport. And uh, yesterday, so Monday, uh, it came out via Robert Peston, the uh, you know, well, very well-connected journalist, that Rishi Sunak had decided to cut HS2 to Manchester. And that really set hairs running with lots of different people, one of whom was uh, Andy Burnham, Mayor of Greater Manchester, Bev Craig, the leader of Manchester City Council, who uh, furiously organised a impromptu press conference to describe to everyone how angry they were. And um, Ethan, you were there at this press conference. Just take me through sort of the gist of what they were saying, why they're so angry about it. Well, the, the key thing to remember is that this is not just about the decision that has or has not or might have been made. It's the way it's been communicated, and that's what really put a bee in the bonnet of both Andy Burnham and Bev Craig. So they were calling for HS2 to stay as it's been planned to. They were calling for NPR to be built as hoped for. And then we had a huddle with Bev Craig after, and we asked her, you know, are, are you offended by this? Because it feels like it's something that you're not just professionally irritated by. It's something that really has struck a chord at the heart of you. And she laughed and then said, yes, absolutely, because I feel like ministers are trying to embarrass Manchester. So that's the mood at the moment within the city. It's not just we're irritated about this. It's they've done this in the wrong way and they've done it in a way that's so disrespectful that it's going to be hard to forget and forgive. Yeah, uh, Andy Burnham was you know, saying Andy Burnham things, lots of, lots of bombastic rhetoric about the North being betrayed, etc. But there was also, interestingly, his counterpart in the West Midlands, Andy Street, who is a pragmatic, conservative mayor. He was also furious because, as it stands, 
uh, HST will get as far as his city, won't go any further north to Crewe or to Manchester. He is, you know, he may even resign over this. Like people are watching whether he's going to uh, quit as a Conservative, which is a pretty extraordinary thing to be happening. But just looking at the bigger picture in terms of the North Railways, Jen, I guess there have been questions about HS2 for a while, haven't there? And I, I guess if it does, if, if Rishi Sunak does decide to cut it, the question will be, what does he replace it with? I guess we'll find out maybe in the speech tomorrow or maybe a bit, a bit later. That's kind of what everyone is wondering, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I'm assuming that the political calculation um, from Rishi Sunak's point of view is that HS2 has never been a kind of overwhelmingly popular infrastructure project. So, you know, you can afford to take the hit on that, look like he's taking a tough decision and then come out and promise something that is more uh, immediately popular. So, you know, Northern Powerhouse Rail, for example, we know that we're only getting uh, a sort of watered-down version of what Northern leaders had wanted. Um, you know, he could decide that some of, that, uh, some of the savings on HS2 could be used to build... NPR in full and um, give Andy Burnham his underground station at Piccadilly and give Bradford its connection and do it. Whether or not there's actually enough savings to be made in HS2 to do that, I'm not 100% clear because it also sounds like he's going to be wanting to talk about buses and potholes. I mean, you know, he could buy some electric buses, for example. That could be a thing that he could do. Uh, Fairly quick to roll out as well, pre-election. and perhaps some of this money is being held back for tax cuts, which is dominating the debate within the party here this week, as well as the HS2 stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess um, one of the things I keep hearing when... Because if you talk to any business leader who's at one of the many drinks events that we've been going to this week at conference, they will talk to you about the importance of HS2 in terms of providing certainty for businesses to invest in the north but also the the key thing that people don't often talk about or don't talk about enough is the whole issue of capacity on the railways it's not hs2 isn't just important because it allows you to get to london 20 minutes quicker uh, although it would do that but the point is that by creating a whole new railway line you are freeing up space for the 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 day-to-day services which are at the moment crammed onto not enough railway to to run more smoothly and without a new line it's hard to see how that is going that situation is going to improve yeah and i think one of the one of the best advocates of that argument is andy street the tory mayor in the west midlands and he was talking a lot about this yesterday and he was also talking about the impact on business confidence both the businesses that have made substantial investments in the expectation that this route was going to get built um, and also future potential investors including internationally and what this then says to them about the confidence that they can have when the government says it's going to build a thing um, and I think that that business aspect of it is really preoccupying him uh, and I think you know there's a, similarly when I was at there was a rail event uh, Sunday night where Mark Harper was being asked over and a transport secretary was being asked over and over and over again about HS2 and he wasn't answering it. You could sort of feel the atmosphere in the room was full of rail executives who were just kind of in disbelief that you would be doing this and all of the knock-on effect that that then has on things like rolling stock companies and all of that stuff that you don't necessarily immediately see. I guess on the other side of the coin I think it's indisputable that HS2 is not a universally popular uh, project even amongst you know the, the average person even, even in the north like opinion on it is quite split and just think, I guess you have to, maybe you have to think about all these things with 
the, the fact that there's a general election potentially uh, in, in a year. And it occurs to me that for a lot of Conservative MPs whose constituencies are between the big cities and they're not going to see the benefit of HS2 but it is going to go through their patches and potentially knock down their housing estates and you know lower house prices for, for them. Like I imagine they will be silently cheering that, uh, that, that this isn't going to happen. Esther McVeigh, who's the MP for Tatton uh, in Cheshire, she is a high-profile uh, opponent of HS2 and she was saying at an event this morning uh, that well, she 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 cited an article that said it was wor- it was going to cost 180 billion pounds, which I, I think is a discredited figure. I don't think people who know about it think that that's right. But she was saying that could be spent 40, give 45 million 45 billion each to four different northern cities, and that would achieve achieve a lot more. So I guess the point is that it's not you know HS2 is not a uh, a universally popular thing. Anyway, we'll move on to. Uh, another topic, in case listeners are wondering, by the way, we're in a Manchester Central Library, just a few, about 100 metres away. There's a big, uh, big protest going on uh, outside the convention centre. So if you hear a bit of background noise, a bit of chanting in the background, that's, that's what it is. And um, I think it's fair to say that HS2 and Rishi Sunak's decision to axe it is the thing that most people will remember about Conservative Conference um, 2023. And, but I guess it's kind of interesting about what else we've learned about Rishi Sunak's leadership and the state of the Conservative Party. Because you know, obviously lots of other ministers have been speaking and uh, yeah, there's, there's been lots of fringe events and policy events about different things. I mean, Jen, have you, how have you found it in terms of getting a sense of where the Tories and Rishi Sunak are at the moment, just generally, in, you know, in terms of their mission? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the atmosphere is beyond kind of flat, really. I mean, it's very, very quiet on Sunday. It's picked up a little bit now, but um, it's it's not a it, it's not a, a jubilant atmosphere to say the least. Um, doesn't really feel like a party that's going in with great confidence into the next general election. Although there certainly are Tories, if you talk to them, who still think that there is a chance there. And that is partly, you know, that is, you're starting to see the outline of a, of a general election campaign, right, with some of the stuff Rishi Sunak's talking about around motorists and scrapping net zero and whatever it is he's going to say in his conference speech potentially to replace HS2. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that discipline has been fantastic. It's not as bad as last year, um, but, I mean, last year was just complete chaos, um, so the bar's pretty low. Um, but it hasn't been great. You've had Cami... Kemi Badenoch come out um, floating the idea that we should be leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. We've had Suella Braverman also going out and doing her own thing. Um, Michael Gove hinting that, you know, actually we should be cutting uh, taxes uh, and then, you know, Rishi Sunak having to basically come back and say that's not something that I'm going to commit to now. Got 30 MPs signing a letter saying that they won't vote for any more tax increases. You've got Liz Truss at the fringe going around winding things up. You've got people clearly jockeying to be the next leader after whatever happens at the next election. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that everybody's on message. Um, and, I, and at the same time, you know, Rishi Sunak's obviously been a trying to use this conference to sort of set out his stall really create a dividing line between what's gone before and what's coming now under him and you know uh sort of put his mark on things as the guy who's willing to take the tough decisions and have the big long-term strategy but i am not sure that that's actually what you're hearing when you're here 
No, I think it really isn't. And yeah, I think Vishy Sunak's uh, slogan is taking long-term decisions for the future of the country. I'm not totally sure how watering down your net zero commitments and uh, you know potentially cutting HS2 to save money fits in with that. The other one thing that I thought was quite interesting is uh, some of the announcements that have been coming out are clearly geared with an election in mind. Like, for example, Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, uh, he, was, he came out in his speech about the, uh, this whole concept of 15-minute cities, which is a sort of planning concept that most people kind of like, where it, it's the theory that you ought to be able to access local amenities by 15 minutes on either walking or cycling. But there are some conspiracy theorists on the right who hate this idea and Mark Harper is saying that he is going to clamp down on this and it's suggested that some councils uh, are trying to stop people from going to the shops or trying to tell them when they can go to the shops, which I don't think there's any evidence that's actually happening. Uh, and I heard another minister suggest that Labour want to tax, tax meat which is, again, when they were pressed on that, there was no evidence that that's actually happening. So there's a few uh, you know, bits of red meat, to pardon the pun, for, for, for Tory voters. Ethan, you did a uh, box pop, as we call it in the trade, around uh, the convention centre, spoke to a few uh, Tory members. What, what sense did you get from them about how they're feeling about things? They're not confident, to put it in very few words. We, we spoke to quite a few, and the sort of most optimistic view we could get actually came from a councillor for Saddleworth South, and he said, to be honest, it's a year out, a lot can change, but I don't think it'll be as bad as everyone thinks it will be at the moment. But that doesn't mean, he was very clear, he said, that doesn't mean I think we'll win. Um, I mean, we're talking about, I, I spoke to a couple of lads who are 18, who come up, first conference, full of vim and vigour, and even they were like, well, you'd be a fool to think anything other than a a loss is what's going to happen it, the mood as Jen said the mood is flat and I think that's born out of a feeling of resignation that if the election is in a year's time and things carry on like this it's not going to go spectacularly well for them um, and it, it's something we were in a, Joe and I were in a fringe event with um, Lord Hannon um, one of the Brexit architects and he said well actually when you think about it there hasn't been a party that's won five elections in a row since the 1830s so they're facing a tall order anyway but then when you've got you know, we've talked about the meat tax, which doesn't exist, the 15-minute cities, which, well, the conspiracy theory is, is wrong, and then you're doing it in a place where you're cancelling the major investment. It doesn't necessarily feed into this idea that they're a you know, well-functioning, well-oiled machine with a competent leader at the helm, which is what Rishi was brought in to do after the chaos of Liz Truss. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you talk to Northern Conservatives, and we've been to a few events with different Northern Tory MPs, they will argue that levelling up and really accentuating that is key to the Tories if they're going to have any hope of getting back into power uh, next year. And uh, the Manchester Evening News really uh, you know, set out their stall on Monday with a very striking front page sort of summing up uh, how levelling up is going so far. I think the headline is uh, well. Well, Joe, you can tell us. You helped write the front page. Just, just tell, tell, tell us, tell us about it. Yeah. Well, we had a look back at the white paper that was published last year, um, which, to be fair, you know, the targets set out in that are uh, to be achieved by 2030. So it's by no means the end of that long-term program that the government has set out. But we had a look at some of the stuff that how it has defined levelling up, a key sort of cornerstone of their. Um, election pledge when they won so decisively in, in, in 2019 
And although there has been sort of some progress in some respects, we've had a devolution deal since that white paper um, was published, um, you know, giving local leaders more power, at least creating the environment for those discussions to happen. Um, on, in some respects, and a lot of this is related to the pandemic, things got worse and the gap grew. Um, that's what we found when it came to life expectancy, um, education, sort of GCSE grades, pay. I mean, real wages have gone down everywhere because of inflation, but it's gone down more here in the Northwest. So in many respects, I mean, some people will look at that and say, well, it wasn't the Tories' fault that we had a pandemic, but obviously the way the pandemic unfolded in Greater Manchester and the North and the way it was handled by the government was quite different. So there is definitely some culpability there as well. Um, so, yeah, we just looked at the measures that they've set for themselves and tried to have a, a fair look at um, a fair assessment of how it's gone. So the question is, Mr Prime Minister, how is levelling up going? And the answer is probably not that well, to be honest. Um, the, uh, to, to, you know, in fairness to them, the government this weekend has uh, announced a major levelling up scheme, I guess you could call it major, £1.1 billion to be spent on 55 overlooked towns, I think 20 or so of them are in the north. Um, Jen, you've, you've had quite a careful look at this, uh, I mean for people who sort of study these things it seems quite similar in many ways to things like the Towns Fund, the Leveling Up Fund, these sort of place-based funds that the government doles out, 20 million here, 25 million there, which allows them to do things that they can put on election flyers. I mean, is that is that too cynical a way to look at it, or is that basically the sum of it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm probably one of about four people to have read the government's long-term plan for towns, which is the strategy that underpins this £1.1 billion pot that they've announced. Um, the government's insisting that that's new money, um, but a lot of my kind of local government contacts are suspicious that actually it's the third phase of the levelling up fund, um, which hadn't yet been allocated. So, you know, actually, is that is it just a rebrand of money that they would have been spending on this kind of thing anyway? Um, don't know. Um, the actual plan itself um, has got some sensible things in it. I mean, it is saying if you get money out of this pot under this scheme, instead of you having to bid in competitively with every other council in the country, you've got to do, not got to do any of that. You get the money over a 10-year period, which then allows you to be kind of like apply some longer-term strategic thinking to it. And obviously, you know, we all know regeneration takes ages. Um, it gives them some flexibility over what they spend it on. So um, I, I think they do have to have a plan signed off by the government. But, um, it, I, you know, I don't think they're constantly going to be going back and making sure that the, um, you know, their next year, of funding has been achieved by ticking X set of boxes. Um, so I think it is an attempt to come up with something that's um, a little bit more effective, but it certainly looks like essentially a pre-election announcement that's been drawn up relatively quickly. And if you read the plan, it's basically saying, um, yeah, so all of these places are going to have boards overseeing these projects, and those boards all need to be in place by... Um, the spring and then we'll give you some money for capacity and then by the way by the summer you will have drawn up a 10 year plan for your town and it's kind of like okay is, can you can you draw up a 10 year plan from scratch for your town that's like really good in such a quick space of time and you know that would suggest that it's very much being driven by the electoral cycle so that you've got something to be able to go out and say to people we've already started work on um, whatever it is that you're doing in whichever town it is you want to uh, to re-win in, uh, at the next election. So I think, um, you know, it's a mixture of stuff 
where you sort of think actually some of the approaches that have been adopted in this would have been sensible to do at the beginning of the parliament you know instead of the way that they set up the many different competitive pots that they set up from 2019 onwards if they had done something like this at the beginning that might have been you know a more sensible way of going about things although um, clearly that's notwithstanding the fact that, uh, you know, sitting behind all of this is the fact that local authorities used to do this stuff and they're not funded properly enough anymore to do it. So, I mean, you know, you can't really leave that out of the equation. But, it, it, you know, in policy terms, it looks more sensible than previous iterations of the same thing. But really, it looks to me like it's kind of largely election politics. I mean, two things I thought were interesting. One is the, the, the fact that there's much less involvement from local councils than in previous schemes. And in fact, I think you tweeted that in the Vichy Sunak's foreword, he says that previous schemes like this have handed the money to councils which are already failing, uh, and that's perhaps the reason why these schemes didn't didn't really work uh, as as they should do. And I, I, it kind of fit that that sentiment fitted in with what I'm hearing quite a lot from senior ministers, which is sort of laying the blame for things not going right at the door of local councils, who let us forget have had their budgets. You know, cut by 50, 60% over the last 13, 13 years ago. So uh, it, it's, it, it seems like they found an easy target to blame for, for things going wrong. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think he talks in that forward about um, local politicians not being given money anymore to squander, which, I, you know, if I was a Conservative council leader, I probably wouldn't be particularly happy about that. Um, but I think that, you know, there was always a blame game goes on between central and local, let's be honest. Um, but I think actually there is also a kind of realisation in government that large parts of local government now really aren't functioning, and that is true. Um, and we are seeing more and more councils falling over. I think there is a sort of perhaps some of the bringing in of external partners to do this is a recognition, a tacit recognition, that actually local government doesn't have the ability to deliver stuff in a lot of places anymore. Um, and so then, you know, maybe you do then set up a board with business and MPs and so on. But this goes against like the levelling up missions that they, they stated just, what, 18 months ago, empowering local leaders, and then to go out and talk about local councils squandering money. It just I mean, it's the same thing with the HS2 stuff, to go back to that. Like, not, having, not engaging with local leaders when you're making such a big decision, that's not empowering local leaders, is it? I mean, like Jen was saying, it, you know, local government is in a really difficult position at the moment. I don't know if anyone's really got the answers. I don't think, like, the Conservatives have come up with, you know, anything aside from devolution at a higher level when it comes to sort of local government and councils I don't really know if, if Labour have really said anything about how they, they change it either so it's, it is in a really difficult position but there's just that contradiction when you're talking about levelling up and, and devolution and empowering local leaders and then using that sort of language and I think it's worth saying both on that and particularly on HS2 that many of the questions that we're, we're asking this week we will then be having to ask Labour next week and Labour will struggle to answer some of them that's true. Labour have put themselves in a bit of a tough position. I think their line on HS2 is they are waiting to see exactly how much it's going to cost before they confirm whether they pay for it or not. And just a final point on that, I thought it was interesting, the whole towns versus cities sort of dichotomy that Vichy Sunak and Michael Gove are trying to set up. Vichy Sunak said specifically, we spent too much time focusing on cities. We really need to be talking about towns more, putting more resources into those towns. I think it's no coincidence cynics might argue that towns is where you are much more likely to find uh, Tory voters or potential Tory voters in the cities generally speaking they almost all vote Labour that's a trend that's been happening 
for years and years. And there was quite an, an amusing guest booking we, uh, after this town's announcement was made. We went to a centre for cities think tank uh, drinks, which obviously the Centre for Cities set up to promote the cause of cities, and a government minister, Gareth Davies, was sent out uh, to speak on behalf of the government when only just a few hours earlier the Prime Minister had been saying, we don't need to care about cities anymore, it's all about towns. So a bit of a cognitive dissonance there. And we're running out of time. I'm just going to go just for a final thought about Conservative Party Conference. Um, Ethan, this is your first... Uh, political conference. I think maybe you went to one a few years ago. Certainly your first Tory party conference. Um, ha- has it exceeded your expectations? What, what have you made of it? Oh, it's been a living dream every second. Um, <laughs> it, it's been interesting. I mean, it, 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 by all accounts, it sounds like it wasn't quite as mental as last year, but also it was. it's still not, I guess, business as usual. But I think the thing that sort of struck me is that this, because this isn't a policy-making conference, so you're unlikely to see sort of hundreds of people in the main hall sticking their hands up to vote for motions or whatever. And the thing that really has resonated with me how it's just how this is all for them. It's just about networking and raising money for the party. And I think they're going to have to amp that up, especially if we're going for a year out from a general election. And they're probably not going to be able to have one this time next year if we're having an election in October, which is what I think most commentators, party insiders think is going to be the case. So, yeah, it's been great. Absolutely. Well, it could be a very different uh, set of circumstances when we come back to Manchester uh, next time. So I'm going to say thanks to, uh, to Ethan, to Jen and to Joe, and we will see you on the podcast next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.